cartoon that showed uh, poor Uncle Sam looking rather old, and underneath it said, um, Electile Dysfunction. <laughs> and then a friend in Florida told me that the pumper sticker that's becoming more popular there now reads, Don't blame me, I voted for both of them. <laughs> Uh, even, well, I had this far side cartoon that shows these cavemen, and there's a kind of a group of them sitting around in a circle, you know, with uh, skins on, and it looks like they're drawing straws for something, like they're having a caveman meeting or something like that, and two guys are off to the side saying, this whole thing is beginning to get out of hand. I say that we give up wearing clothes and talking before it's too late. <laughs> Not to speak of elections, but anyway... Here we are. (laughs) Over the course of the past uh, few weeks, this second half of this fall, We've been working with a series of talks on the divine abodes or the divine states of the heart and mind, the um, Brahma-viharas as they're called, the abodes of blessings, that are said to be the natural state of our human heart uh, when we are not fettered or confused or, or, or lost in the world. And I know last week, for those who came, um, Nina Wise was here and did a talk that I heard was quite beautiful on the spirit of generosity and how that generosity is also really natural to us as human beings. And anybody who forgets that natural generosity, all you have to do is hang out with really little kids. Um, because how much, you know, they're eating something and they want to stick it in your mouth and have you eat some too, or they discover something and their first thing is to run over and give you a piece of it or a part of it. It's such a fundamental, natural instinct when we're still in touch with that beauty and abundance that is our birthright to also want to share it with others. Well, the qualities of the Brahma-viharas that are natural to the human heart in particular when we release our fear and confusion and the difficulties and kind of touch that awakened heart, our loving-kindness, which we've talked about in the past weeks, equanimity or balance of heart, joy. And for this evening, I'd like to speak about the quality of compassion. It's said in the Buddhist text that compassion is defined as the quivering of the heart, of the human heart, in the face of pain or sorrow or loss of another living being. So Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, Tibetan Lama and sage, wrote about it this way, He said, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty, 
you find that you're looking into space. And if you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw meat of the heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. And yet it is this tender heart that has the power to heal and transform the world. So, so compassion is the natural movement of the heart in sympathy with the struggles of another being or of ourselves. And it's not pity, which is the description of the near enemy to compassion, the state that feels like it but is really still separating. Oh, that poor person, they're suffering as if they were somehow different than we are. But a connected understanding. And that connection can come in so many different ways. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise at even too heavy a human touch. So one day she realized that every strawberry she had ever eaten, every piece of fruit had been picked by callous human hands. Every piece of bread, every glass of wine represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth. The only way we can live is to feed each other. It's that moment of recognition of how deeply we are interconnected in what we share. Because there's so much suffering that's visible right now in the Middle East, I want to tell a story of a man that I met. I hope it's okay with him to tell his story. Um, who actually works now, in, part of the time anyway, as a hospice worker here in the Bay Area. Um, but he's a, formerly a journalist and a Palestinian. And I asked him what he was doing here and how he found himself doing hospice work. And he said, well, I sit with those who are dying because I've learned not to be afraid of death. And I was doing some teaching for this hospice. And so I asked him, I said, how did you learn that? And he said, I was a journalist many years ago in the Middle East, a Palestinian journalist, and it was a very difficult uh, occupation, quite dangerous to really print what we saw. And um, we were closed down many times, imprisoned periodically. He said, and then one time we wrote some things, and I was hauled off to prison and beaten terribly. He said, I'd been beaten before, but this was the worst. I was thrown into prison cell, and then the guards came in, and they beat me until I was senseless. And I was lying there almost unconscious on the floor in a pool of my own fluids. 
And just before I felt like I would black out for good, I could feel my consciousness leave my body. And I floated as if, as people do in trauma, as if I was floating on the ceiling, watching this whole scene of the beating. And then he said an amazing thing happened. I expanded further and I could feel myself to be a part of everything. I was a part of the police station and the prison cell. I was a part of the old moldy paint flecks on the wall. I was the guards who were kicking me. I was the dirt under their fingernails. I was the cows whose sound you could hear in a distance in the fields outside of the police station. I was absolutely all of it. And I began to weep. What was left of my body began to weep, not from pain, but from joy to know that this is who I really was. He said, then I blacked out and I woke up several days later incredibly sore and, and pained um, in this jail cell. I was in prison for six months at that time. He said, and I very slowly healed. And as I healed and I spent my time in prison, he said, my circumstances were so much different because I felt such love for everybody that I saw because they were me. He said, and then there was this bird that would come on the windowsill. He said, this is the prisoner's story. I began to try to tempt it to come with bread. And sure enough, over enough days, I got it not to just come on the windowsill, but to come into my cell and get closer and closer to be able to feed it with the food that I saved. So there I was in my cell with this one little bird, and I got it to come way into the cell and sit near my bed and sit on the floor with me. And one day, one of the guards came in when I was sitting near the door with the bird and pushed the door open really forcefully, and it killed the bird. He said, and I sat on the floor with the bird and wept. And then I looked up, and the guard had tears in his eyes. And he had, he, they knew about my bird, and he was weeping too. He was really sorry. He hadn't intended to do it. And then I looked at him, and he, he was a young man. He'd come as an immigrant the year before, he told me, from Russia, because there was no work there and because the uh, Jews in Russia were being beaten and hauled off to prison and, and there was terrible racism in that society and he escaped and he came to Israel hoping for a better life but he wasn't able to get any job at all except prison guard and he spent 12 hours a day working in this prison and he looked at me and I looked at him and we realized that we were both stuck in prison together that when we imprison another in some way, we are imprisoned ourselves. He said, and after that I knew that I didn't have to take sides in any conflict, and my whole life changed, and he told me the rest of the story of how he came to the U.S. As we undertake a spiritual practice, as we sit, as we pay, a deep and respectful attention to this human life we've been given in meditation and reflection, what we begin to discover is how much we need compassion in order to open to our own body for healing, compassion for our fears and struggles, 
compassion for our loneliness, for the conflict of our lives, for the betrayals that we've all experienced, for the stress or the sickness or the aging we encounter, for the hopes and fears we carry for loved ones. And we can feel at times how the mind will close and get tight around the way things are supposed to be and how people are behaving and how they've treated us. And then you can remember the words of the Buddha. Look how they abused me or beat me, threw me down or robbed me. Repeat these thoughts and you live in hate. Look how they abused me or beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. You too shall pass away. Life is so short. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. When we pay attention in an honorable way in meditation, we come up very immediately to the struggles and sufferings of our own life. They're there, the grief we carry. They're there right in front of us. But we also recognize, as we sit quietly for even a short time, that we carry within us the sorrows of the world. And how could we not? The images come back of the conflicts in the Middle East or the struggles in Africa, or Burma, or Afghanistan, or Kosovo. Or the knowledge comes that we're sending weapons worldwide. The U.S. is the greatest exporter of weapons ever on the face of the earth. To countries that need medicine and food. Or we remember the rainforests or the fact that new species get listed as endangered and disappear every month. What is man without the beasts, said Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, men would die from a great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. And we remember this. And we carry as well the knowledge of the sorrows of our own society, the homeless on our streets, the injustice and racism, the two million people in our prisons where we spend more money than on our schools. And any human being that looks with their eyes or their heart a little bit open, how can we not be touched? This is the truth that the Buddha spoke of, the first noble truth of the sorrows of the world. Several years ago, I was invited to participate in one of a series of events uh, called the World Forum, sponsored by Mikhail Gorbachev, generally held here in San Francisco, with various political and business and spiritual leaders from around the world. Um, including um, prime ministers and CEOs and so forth. And I went and 
tasted and participated in some of those and was part of a presentation and a panel um, on the renewal of spiritual life in this kind of changing millennial time. And then I chose to go to a particular presentation on forgiveness. And it said, forgiveness against, um, or forgiveness for crimes against humanity. And I was curious, having spent time in places like Cambodia, what they would say, and thought it would be kind of a legal exposition, you know, the international law experts. But it wasn't at all. It was a whole ballroom full of people. And there was a panel who sat in front of mostly young people. Mostly, there were five or six people. Most of them were quite young. One was a young girl from Guatemala who talked about her uncle being pulled out of their small house in a village and shot in front of the house one night because he had talked to the wrong people or was suspected of something in the revolution. And what could she ever do um, to forgive that? And that she was trying because she knew her nation needed it. Or a young boy who lived in Sarajevo and talked about all the years of shelling and the loss of life around him and the injustice and what could he ever do with that and how first the world just needed to acknowledge what had happened. Someone had to stand up and tell the truth. And Jose Ramos Horta, who had won the Nobel Prize for the peoples of East Timor, talked about the suffering in their struggle to free themselves from the Indonesian military. Finally, this old Russian man spoke. He said, I lived for 35 years in the prisons of Siberia. I was in prison for so long, and I thought about it a lot, and whose fault it is, and what we have to do. And he said, we have to acknowledge what happened, and we need to get apologies But he said, whose fault is it really? And when I looked at our Russian history, the revolution at the turn of the 7th century, the Bolshevik revolution and the killing of the white Russians and then the period under Lenin and the period under Stalin and how many were killed in those periods and then the Second World War and how many were killed at that time and then afterward again the society that closed under Khrushchev and Brezhnev and how many were sent to the prison camps. And I looked at a whole century, tens of millions of us, and I realized in a moment, one day, he said, it's not somebody doing it to us. It's all of us participating. We all have our part. And if forgiveness starts, it also has to start here. They spoke so personally. And finally, the last young man on the panel looked up And he said, like these others, I don't know how we can forgive, but I'll tell you my story. His name was An Chon Pond, and I had known him from the years ago when I worked in the refugee camps of the Cambodians um, during that terrible time. And he'd escaped from a village where the Khmer Rouge had taken over the village, burned down the temple, 
um, rounded up all the elders, anybody who could speak, uh, who could read, um, or who knew the ancient languages of Pali and Sanskrit, who was well-educated, um, and began to systematically exterminate them. And he said there was one man in the village who was an artist and a musician. And he said this man knew he had very little time left to live. And he called me over. And he said, I want to show you. He knew me as a young boy. I want to show you what I know, what my elders, what my grandfather taught me. And in the last week of his life, he showed me how to cut bamboo and how to scrape the skin off and how to drill holes in it to make it into a Cambodian musical instrument, the kind of flute that we play. And then he began to teach me the old melodies. And he said, you must remember these even when I'm gone. And then the most terrible thing was that the young people of the village were forced to participate in the execution of their elders. He said, and I didn't know if I could ever forgive this. It's been so many years but I've watched the people of our country suffer for so long, I realized today, and he looked around the room, that the only possibility for us as human beings to survive on this earth is forgiveness. And he looked, his, his, his gaze was so piercing um, after he told this story, and he said, and I want to tell you one more thing. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out this little bamboo flute. He said, this elder, this man who taught me this melody and said, I must not let it die out. I have to tell you one thing, but I can't tell it to you in words. I have to tell it to you through my flute. And he put his flute to his lips and he played this kind of haunting melody through this bamboo flute as if to say, everything that we have suffered and everything that we have gone through, yes, it is true, and yet the spirit that was given to me, the beauty of this man before he died, I carry and I give it now to you. We sat there kind of glued to our chairs at the end of this. There was really very little that... You could say, they asked for questions. Nobody could say anything. We just sat with the great human need for forgiveness and compassion. If we are to truly awaken, to awaken the great heart of a Buddha, which is in you and you and you in each of us, we have to bow to this mysterious human realm with its vast tragedies and its unspeakable beauty. It is the realm that we have been born into. As the Sufis say, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet that in joy instead of self-pity. But how can we do it? What's possible? What way to do this?
a poem for you. This by Alison Luderman, who lives in the East Bay. And it's partly from memory, so I hope I have it right, most of it. She writes, Don't tell anyone, but even as a good Jewish girl, I love Jesus. I love his dark Semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and the prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's sort of like that Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. It's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble. But oh Jesus comes naturally to your lips. I just don't want to die saying, oh, shit. (laughs) I really want to die like a llama lying on my right side, my head turned in the direction of my next birth. Maybe I have to meditate a lot to do this well. But let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus seems so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible with all the particular people around you. But then if you really look, you realize what else is there to do? What else is there to do? How to do it. In a direct way, we realize that when we forget compassion and mercy, and loving-kindness. We're reminded by others. It's contagious. We catch it from one another. They remind us to return to our true nature. So Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said that the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, the awakened heart, is passed from warm hand to warm hand, from one loving being to another. And we know those moments, the moments when we look in the eyes of another being with so much compassion because we see in their eyes the pain that's there, the sorrows that have been given to that person, the measure of suffering, the disappointments, the losses and failures that are there in every single human life the loneliness, the hurts that they, like we, have carried. And when we let ourselves look with those kind of eyes, with the eyes of compassion, into any single being deeply, it's as if we know and the heart softens and that miracle of our connectedness, of our true nature, of our Buddha heart, re-arises in us. Sometimes we can do this. Sometimes we get afraid. It's too much. The suffering's too, too great. The heart isn't big enough to hold the sorrows of the world. We get lost in the small sense of ourself, what's sometimes called the body of fear. But the poet Hafiz, the Sufi poet, reminds us in a few words. He says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you living in better conditions, my friend. (laughs) 
In fact, it just takes a moment. There we are, struggling, frightened, whatever it is, and in a moment something will remind us. Sometimes, as it's said in India, it's that glance of mercy, that being that looks at you. Sometimes it's the guru in India who looks at you with such compassion, the compassion that you've never given to yourself in this incarnation, in this life, with such love that you go, oh, now I understand. And I brought tonight a picture of Indian sage Ramana Maharshi, who has been an inspiration to me for, oh, my whole adult life, because this picture captures that. He taught mostly in silence, and people would come, and he would just look at them with so much love that it would completely change their life. That's all. Or my teacher Deepama in Calcutta, who would just hug us, and she would just hold us and kind of bless us and put her hands and kind of all over our head and our body and, you know, stroke you and say, you know, may you be well and do this kind of metta. And by the time she was done, you're just grinning for hours. We catch it from one another. The glance of mercy, the hug. And from some greater perspective of the heart, we see that we're all born into circumstances of praise and blame and difficulty and ease and gain and loss and light and dark and birth and death. It's a part of this life. We get all of it together. And yet in any circumstance, the freedom of the heart, that mercy, is really possible. I heard about one Tibetan Kampa warrior who was fighting against the communist Chinese army when they first started to take over Tibet and went in the mountains with the movement of those who tried to keep Tibet free and fought for a long time till almost everyone died. And finally he went back to his village to try to get new recruits. And when he returned home to his village, partly because he'd been a leader in the mountains, he discovered that they had bombed and burned almost every house in the village and almost every man, woman, and child had been killed. And he was so disheartened and so outraged, um, but he didn't have anything to do that he walked over the mountains to India to escape and look for others to help him. And he went to the great Tibetan Lama Kalu Rinpoche looking for support and maybe to go back with other armed people And Kala Rinpoche said, there's only one thing you can do now. And he placed him in a three-year, three-month, three-day retreat, Tibetan retreat. And he said, for these three years, three months and three days, you must do compassion every waking moment until you transform the suffering that has been given to you, this vast suffering, into compassion for this earth. Like Anne Frank who wrote, I keep my ideals because in spite of the misery and the suffering of millions, I still believe that people are essentially good at heart. This compassion is as essential for true spiritual practice and freedom of heart as the air that we breathe. And as we learn 
as we remember to let go of the small sense of self, we discover how natural compassion is, how it is really who you really are. You know, in humanistic and transpersonal psychology, one of the founders, Abraham Maslow, in the early years wrote about this pyramid of human needs, which he said the first basic human need is for food. And then if that's met, the next level of need is for shelter. And then the next level of need is social needs, contact with one another. And then creative needs, and if those are met, then there are spiritual needs. But I think that that's really wrong. And he had all the needs listed correctly. Because even if the needs aren't met, even if we're aching and we're hungry, if a child falls into the street and is crying, some little child, we reach out and want to pick that child up. When somebody is suffering near us, even if our needs aren't met, there comes this natural movement of the heart, if we have even a shred of attention to it, to reach out and offer our care. It is who we are. I remember talking to this rickshaw puller in Calcutta, this old guy who'd been doing it for years, and he said what he was afraid of wasn't so much his own getting sick, because it was really a hard living to make, but that he fed so many other people with his work, and he was afraid if he got sick that he wouldn't be able to feed all these other mouths in his family. The natural compassion that is there in us. I have this poster, and I guess I'll get it framed at some point, of Vedran Smolovich performing. He was the, the cellist of Sarajevo. This is in the burned-out library, the National Library of Sarajevo. And he's there with his cello, And he went out every afternoon, even in the times of the worst shelling, and sat in the square and played music so that the people of Sarajevo wouldn't give up heart. A story that I've read here many times, but seems fitting this evening, from Richard Selzer, a surgeon at Yale University. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands opposite me, and they seem to dwell private in the evening lamplight, gazing and touching each other so generously. Who are they? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth 
and I so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. You will notice as you do your own spiritual practice, as you sit in meditation, as you do your prayers, whatever your practice is, the need for compassion. If we are to be present for this human life, the only way that it can work is through that loving heart. As mindfulness and compassion gradually grow in us, there comes all unbidden, a shift of identity. There opens a shift of identity. We start with my body, my feelings, my pain. And then it starts to expand my family, my friends, my loved ones, my community, my country, my continent, my planet. And little by little, What seems like my pain becomes the pain, the pain we share. What's my fear becomes the fear we all have, the sorrows that we all carry. And we begin to see that we really cannot separate ourselves from others. Eric Fromm wrote, I believe that every man woman and child represents humanity. We appear different as to intelligence or talents or health, yet we are all one. We are saints and sinners, adults and children, and no one is anyone superior or judge. We have all been crucified with Christ and awakened with Buddha. We have all walked with Gandhi and we have all killed and robbed with Genghis Khan and Hitler. And today, our life gives us a choice of which we will follow. Or George Washington Carver, who says, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak, and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. Someone came up to me the other day in the meditation retreat. She looked at me, she said, it's so hard, this meditation. It's so difficult, and I feel like I just can't do it. I can't do it right. I don't do anything right. And I just looked back at her, and I said, how long have you felt that you can't do anything right? And she stopped for a moment because she'd been sitting for most of the day. She was sort of quiet. And her eyes began to water. And she said, a long time. I said, how long? She said, probably since I was two or three. You know what we get taught. And she just started to sit there, little tears going down her cheeks. And I said, suppose you take that two-year-old, that three-year-old, 
and put her in your lap, like the Buddha says in the Sutra on Loving Kindness, like a mother holding her beloved child. This is the way we can practice this compassion. And just hold her. And don't tell her that she can't do it wrong, right or, you know, that nothing's right and she can't do it. Just hold her and let her feel the compassion that you feel for yourself now. It's said in the story of the life of the Buddha that after his enlightenment under the tree, the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, he sat and surveyed the world with the eye of wisdom, looked across the whole vast, wide world of beings. And he saw beings everywhere wanting happiness and yet very often doing the things that created suffering for themselves and others. They all wanted happiness, yet they were doing the things out of greed, out of fear, out of hatred, prejudice, out of ignorance, that caused suffering to themselves and others. And when he saw this, the, the desire that each of us has to be happy and the confusion that creates our suffering, the deepest compassion arose and tears began to stream down the cheeks of the Buddha. And as they hit the earth, as they hit the ground, they turned into the goddess Tara, who is the bodhisattva of compassion. And her task is to be there for every single suffering being, not just those who suffer, but those who cause suffering, because they cause suffering for themselves as well as others. It's why the Tibetan nuns in prison do their prayers primarily for their jailers and guards, why they say, we pray for the enemy. Because they see the suffering that's being created in those human lives. And so the Buddha wanted to teach because he knew that we want to be happy and that it is possible to be happy and free, not by running away from the sorrows of the world, but by opening to this human realm exactly and honorably and directly the great heart of compassion. Gary Zukoff, who is the author of The Seed of the Soul and other books like that, He wrote about working with the men in San Quentin prison. He had a group that he worked with there. Talked about how any circumstance can be used to bring grace, redemption, understanding. And I have part of a letter that he wrote during the period when there were the riots, the insurrection in Los Angeles after Rodney King was beaten. And he talked about seeing all this on television as they must be seeing You know, all the actors, Rodney King, Reginald Denny, the police, the rioters. And the most remarkable aspect of the drama was Rodney King's talk on television. Is it not remarkable how the terrible and humiliating beating that happened to him allowed Rodney King to be able to give a message of love and reconciliation and healing to the entire world 
with an authority that not one human being could deny to him. Can you imagine the impact that would have resulted if those around him had joined with Rodney King in asking the human family to live together as brothers? And yet even you there in prison in San Quentin can understand the same thing as possible. Can you appreciate that you are living in one of the most intense environments of fear and separation on this planet? And can you see from your own experience that what you suffer in San Quentin prison could also bring you the inner understanding and authority to live and act and speak of love in this world in a way that people would have to listen to you in a world that needs it so much. Of course, I suggest to you that this is exactly the case. To awaken the heart of compassion, which is the wish that every being be well, that no being suffer, is sometimes talked about in a formal way as the vows of a bodhisattva. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to carry them across the river of sorrow to freedom. Beings are endless. I vow to liberate them all. There are different forms of this vow. To not just practice for oneself alone, but to see that what we do and how we live can be dedicated, can be offered, that our practice, our spiritual life can be offered for the sake of all beings. So in one text it says, now in the end there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the essence of their own hearts and minds. And you will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist in any way separate from yourself. Gandhi put it this way, He said, I believe in the unity of all people and all things. And I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. So to sit in meditation in some ways is a radical political act. To find that capacity for compassion and peace in this body that you've been given, in the life that you've been given, and to bring it into the world, having faced your own loneliness and fear and greed and confusion and anger, and say, yes, I can see all this that makes me human, and choose wakefulness and compassion. To practice in this way gives beauty and power, And blessings to every act and every step brings blessings into the world. Like Mother Teresa says, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can love only one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one, one. 
So you begin. I began. I picked up one person. But maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. The same for you. The same thing in your family, in your community, wherever you go. You simply begin. Just one, one, one. And like loving-kindness, the metta practice that we've done in previous weeks, there's a very simple compassion practice. You can begin with a benefactor or a loved person or yourself, and you picture them or yourself, you visualize them and breathe gently in the heart, and you can feel this even as I say it, toward yourself perhaps first breathing gently in the heart and sensing the life you've been given, the measure of sorrows that granted to you to carry. And then the heart's intention gets expressed in simple phrases. May my sorrows be held with compassion. Or if you look at another being that you love a lot, held in compassion. The second phrase, the heart's intention, may I be free from pain or looking at another. And the third, breathing gently in the heart, if one wants to go to this practice, is to breathe in the sorrows and let the heart transform them and breathe out compassion. Picture someone you love a lot, just for a moment. See them, imagine them. Become aware of their struggles, their suffering, their measure of sorrows. In these simple phrases, may you be held in compassion. May you hold it all in compassion. May you be free from pain and suffering. Be wishing that for them. And then breathing gently as if you could take into the heart their sorrows, take their burden from them into yourself. And let it soften your heart, open the well of compassion and breathe out to them your kindness. For if you could carry their sorrows, would you not help them? And finally, for all those in the world who suffer, for Michelle who had an accident, someone spoke of earlier tonight, for Catherine, for so many beings. May you be held in compassion. May you be free from sorrow. May you be well.
For the last 15 minutes tonight, I want to invite up Jacques Verdun, who is the head of the Insight Prison Project. And he's actually worked very diligently over these last years. Do you want to turn that other mic on? Here, Jacques, take that mic. Keep, yeah, keep both mics on. Um, Jacques has really worked um, very hard to get into the prisons in the Bay Area, which is not an easy thing, especially into San Quentin, and be there for both men who are in prison and for their families. And he spoke about this a bit last week when Nina was here and we were started to collect uh, books and toys. So I'm really pleased you're here tonight. Thank you, Jacques. I want to thank you for... Uh, is this on? That's yeah. Right. Thank you for giving us the support now and through the years as you have. And I want to thank all of you who have come and uh, brought books, Dharma books for the prisoners and toys for them to give to their kids. It's so wonderful for these men to have something to give around Christmas. Um, we'll be collecting them up until next Monday and we'll bring the bin to the lobby of the meditation hall where we usually sit on Mondays. Um, I'm still, my heart's still quivering with the talk. <laughs> and I can feel it out here too. Um, we often end the groups in San Quentin with the metta meditation. And it's really quite extraordinary to see these men find their dignity in wishing peace, freedom, happiness for their guards. One of our last groups was on the, the Day of the Dead. And then there was a series of lockdowns that has uh, locked us out of San Quentin. Um, there was a new member in the group who came and he was kind of shuffled in by the other older members. And we were going to do some uh, ritual around um, honoring the ancestors who had died. Because very often this happens for these men while they are in prison. And this new young man um, spoke as the first one and his two-year-old child had died three weeks before in its sleep. And having a three-year-old myself, I could really feel that. And, uh, of course, he was not allowed to go to the funeral. And we sit in circle when we sit there. And we try to facilitate it so that the men feel it's their group. There's so little that is theirs in there. And quite without script, they all reached out and held hands and bowed their heads and sat there in silence and then began praying for this young man and his child. And it was like we had the funeral right there. And then these men still enter group with praying, doing metta, metta meditation for their guards. I had a lot to say, I thought, before I 
got up here. Um, about five years ago, Jack made an appeal to the Sangha to do something for the prisons. And a number of us responded and got busy with creative writing, yoga, meditation. We even taught a day along for the guards in San Francisco, called it stress reduction. But, um, at the time, Spirit Rock was getting um, itself together and couldn't really on, take on a project. That disappointed a few of the volunteers, and we dwindled pretty much till I was left by myself. But I didn't mind, because I was uh, getting nourished in a way that I never had gotten nourished by bonding with these men in San Quentin. And it was an education, and it continues to be so. I thought naively I was going to do some service as part of my spiritual path, but I was educated instead. And um, feel more complete as a result to be known by these men, to know these men, to play a witness in the belly of the beast, because I think it's fair to say that our prisons represent that in our culture. Um, there is no rehabilitation in the law. It's all about punishment. There is no idea of forgiveness in any legal sense. Um, as my context improved and my solidarity grew, uh, I saw it was time to build an organization. And I found some volunteers in this community who helped me do so. And I couldn't have done it without them. And I'll introduce them later. Um, so now we're off uh, to a running start. We've, uh, Spirit Rock has generously lent us their 501c status as an associated relationship. And we've gotten a little bit of funding and are promised more if we can match it, um, basically to get it together. So when I talk about it, there's three things that are part of the vision. One is the groups. We do groups in San Quentin. We're scheduled to do HIV groups in Vacaville and are also offered to do a group in the Tenderloin uh, in one of the existing organizations there. And in the groups, what happens, basically, there's a check-in. Um, then there's a moment for men to share uh, their creative expressions, a poem, um, a piece of art, pictures of their children. And then we do a process of counsel where we sit and talk about what's up, either between the men or in their lives. And some incredible stories come out of that. Some incredible stories come out of that. Um, that's closed. It's a good chunk of time. We have about a three-hour group. Closed with a segment on spiritual reflection where we do prayer prayers, teach meditation, and sing songs as well. So that's the groups. Then the other part of the vision is to not just reinvent the wheel and become another prison organization, but to build a Bay Area prison cooperative, have a conference, grow a movement. We've got big plans. Um, so we're trying to attract funding for that, as well as for a manual for ex-inmates to 
have a, a, a guide, a reference guide on categories like food, shelter, drug programs, work, things like that. There is no such thing right now. You have to imagine every week 100 people get released on the bus station in San Rafael, which is cordoned off by police so that none of them stay in our county. They get $200 gate money, and that's it. So um, recidivism is, is pretty large. The last thing we do is called the Testimony Project. This is a part of the vision that was started by a little girl called Ashley Hyde. Um, and we had hoped she'd be here. She's a daughter of, an, of one of our inmates. Um, I don't know what happened. It could well be car troubles. Uh, but she didn't make it out here tonight. Um, a little later, I'd like to read a letter that she wrote for Father's Day that started our testimony project. And the testimony project basically... I, I'm turning into a fast-talking Buddhist. Is that okay? <laughs> I have so much to share here. The testimony project is basically set up to uh, put a different voice out than the crime shows and the political fear-inducing uh, talk and to amplify the voices of the people that uh, are really uh, affected by our incarceration system. And um, primarily those of children who have a, a parent incarcerated and to reinsert that back into the cultural dialogue to find places to publish that. Uh, so that those voices can count. That's kind of an interesting thing to say in America today, <laughs> counting voices. Um, that's really the program in a, in a fast nutshell. Um, I'd like to introduce you to one of the, the members of... Um, the Inside Prison Project, who has very selflessly, very skillfully and generously given his time to do a great administrative job, something that I'm not too good at and really needed help with. And uh, I'm pleased to introduce you to Jonathan, Jonathan Boiso. Thanks, Jack. <clears throat> About, uh, I think it was November of last year, when uh, Bo Lozoff was out here, and after he talked, Jacques got up and spoke a little bit about the Inside Prison Project, and he mentioned he needed some help in um, what he was trying to do, and I guess it was just the right time at the right place, but I, um, I called him up, and I talked to him about volunteering, and that was about 13 months ago, and since then... I've been primarily involved in um, doing a lot of the administrative kinds of things for the project. I don't go into the prison as much as I'd like. I've been spending a lot of time on things like budgeting and um, writing our funding proposals and um, got ourselves incorporated as a nonprofit and those kinds of things. And, um, and in the same vein of volunteerism that Jacques asked for last year, uh, this year we're going to be out in the lobby after uh, the close here, and uh, we also would like to ask people who are interested in volunteering to come up and talk to us. We have uh, about three or four different 
kinds of things available that we could use help on. And um, ranging from what we call the spiritual correspondence program, the book sending program, uh, also some help on the administrative front, and um, also a post-release work. And I'd like to just bring uh, Bill up, Bill McGlashan, if you have a minute to come up here and just talk a little bit about post-release. Bill's also uh, joined the IPP about over oh, six, about six months ago. Make this very fast because we're out of time. Uh, it was six months ago that I joined uh, John and Jock uh, with the Insight Prison Project. And frankly, in my case, it was uh, specifically for heart practice. Uh, I was not uh, particularly sympathetic toward prisoners, and a friend of mine had had a positive experience in doing Zen hospice work in San Francisco with, with his aversion to death. And so I realized I had some heart work to do. Tonight's talk on compassion. And I have to say the six months has been a life-changing experience. I feel totally different about people in need. And on the post-release side, uh, it is a crying need. Jacques alluded to it. I can see in each one of our group members, about a month before they're released, they start to get really nervous because they have failed before. They've ended up back in San Quentin. And deep down inside, there is a very, very real fear of failing again, and many of them do. And you realize it's incredible that in our prison system, there is no rehabilitation, essentially, none. And so what we need to do, there are nine counties in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is a parole region, and each inmate is paroled to one of those counties. And we need to have a thorough idea of what's available in each county. And ideally, it would be on the web. So if some of, some of you can volunteer and are web handy, that would be great. And then we would print out as needed for each individual inmate before they're released, the kind of halfway houses, uh, job finding programs, et cetera, et cetera. So we need help in that area. Some of you may just be good at printing and writing uh, for that project and, and the other things that John and Jacques alluded to. So we strongly need the help and welcome your help. I'll turn it back to Jacques. Bill has also been really wonderful in uh, supporting the project by teaching meditation. So just to close, <clears throat> I'll, uh, I'll read this letter that... Um, this little nine-year-old daughter of the inmate wrote for Father's Day, and she was going to come here and, and do a little singing for us as well, but we'll find out what happened. Uh, her dad is one of our uh, guys, as we say. They become your guys after a while. And um, wrote home uh, frequently to his two daughters and his uh, wife. And didn't realize that his eight-year-old daughter had really learned to read and write quite well herself, so she let him know. Dear Dad, Hello, Daddy. You wrote Mom and Erica. You always forget me. I can read and write. I received a B in English and computer language. I'm going to grade four. I sung at two schools in my school, too. My mom, mom is really trying to let me go to voice lessons at art school, but it is so high. Maybe one day you can help. I asked Mom, why do you go to jail so much? But she wouldn't give me no answer. She just says he had to, that's why. Daddy, that's no reason. Can you tell me what's wrong with you going in and out so much? It makes me feel pretty sad when you're gone. 
And sometimes you're not around on holidays like Christmas, I missed you. When you seen us, you was not happy to see us. You was looking mad, and you did nothing but us, but no picture, no card that said, and last time I seen you, you looked so bad. When will you ever stay home with us for good? You never stay with us. I want you to stay with Erica, Mommy, and me. Mommy said you're getting out soon. What are you going to stay? What will you wear? Will you have food? I have $12 Mom gave me. I saved it for you, Daddy. I miss you. Come out and stay with us. We miss you too much. The man around this place looks spooky. We need you here with us. No more drugs, Daddy. I wish I could blow up the truck drugs. Come on. So many kids don't have moms or dads at my school because of drugs. We have class teaching us about guns and drugs, and they both kill, and that's no good. Please call us later. I love you. So just for a few seconds, um, to send... um, What you feel in your heart to the men that struggle with addiction, that struggle with not being with their families and their families as well. Thank you. We'll, we'll be out in the lobby if you want to uh, talk to us or um, talk to us about donating to the project in either with your volunteerism or with your dollars. Uh, we'll make good use of it. Thank you, Jacques, very much. Um, so next week, toys, they have to be new toys to get into the prison for prisoners to give to their children or books that you feel would really be meaningful to someone who's inside and, um, you know, something that would really be important that someone could read and learn from in a deep way. Uh, next week will be the last of the Brahma Viharas. That's the 18th. And then on the 25th on Monday, which is uh, Christmas Day, that evening, we'll have a sitting and a special slideshow with some music and then a kind of potluck snack food Christmas or holiday Chris Budimus, whatever we want to call it. A little bit of a potluck, just being together in that way. Um, Let's do just one syllable of a chant before we go out. Just the word, ah, that chant, and it's really a letting go and opening of the heart. Ah, add harmony. Ah, ah, Carry the spirit of compassion with you wherever you go. Thank you.
Good night. Those who uh, needed the carts to get up because of